Hey, I'm glad you're joining us today at MCC Online. For those of you who do not know, my name's Sean. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're new, if you've just started to get connected with us, we're so glad you're joining us. We'd encourage you to fill out a Connect card because we'd love to connect with you, uh, even if you're not local, to get a chance to connect with you and get to know you a little bit and how we can be praying for you. Today, we are continuing through the book of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 12. If you don't have a Bible um, and you got another device, you can go to mymcc.info and there's a spot there. You can click sermon notes and you can follow along or you can just stick here and, and we'll put all the verses right up here on this screen. Today, we're going to see a side of Jesus that we see throughout the Gospels, but seems so foreign and unexpected to us so often because the way we have perpetuated an image of Jesus that isn't fully complete. What we're going to see today is we're going to see an angry Jesus. We see Jesus angry in other spots. We see there's an, there's an exchange with a fig tree and, and, and a, um, a commentator named Leonard Sweet, a great theologian, he talks about um, the significance of the prophecy and why Jesus becomes angry at this fig tree and he curses this fig tree. And the, the significance of that intertwined with prophecy, it's, it's much bigger than it looks like Jesus just getting mad at an inanimate object, Right? We also see Jesus get mad um, or angry a couple different times when he's talking about children. There's a passage in Luke 17, and it says this. Um, speaking to a group of adults, he says it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Like, like this is, can we say, like, like this is like mob Jesus, Right? It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. It's not the only exchange that Jesus has about children that is at the best tenuous with his audience. He says also in Matthew 19, 14, but Jesus said, let the little children come and do not hinder them from coming to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. This is after the, the, the apostles are trying to keep the children away. Jesus rebukes the apostles. He becomes frustrated, irritated with the apostles. Don't, don't stop them from coming. And we see a, a, at best tenuous exchange between Jesus and the apostles. Maybe the most famous and well-known is, is the cleansing of the temple. That Jesus goes in and overturns the tables. And, and uh, many have theorized, many have discussed or presented the story in a way where Jesus just kind of snaps. Like he walks in the temple and just, Bleh! But we know that throughout the Gospels and throughout Jesus' life, he would have been in there many times. That what Jesus is doing is on purpose. That he's making a statement. That it's not something he's shocked by or surprised by. He is God. But we see an angry Jesus, and our passage today might not seem like one of those at your initial, initial readings, but it is only if we read into Jesus and his interactions and his, and his tone and we emphasize certain parts of the story that we emphasize Jesus as a soft and weak victim, the soft and weak victim that we so often admire instead of, as Matthew's presenting him, 
the dangerous and powerful king coming to us to conquer and establish a new reign in the face of a very real enemy in darkness and brokenness and evil and sin and wickedness and demons and Satan and all this. Do not miss that all throughout the, the book of Matthew, there's this constant um, forefront of this war going on between this existing kingdom of the world and, and Jesus bringing the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is here. It's inbreaking. It's pushing out another kingdom. And there's a constant tension and war back and forth that will eventually lead to the cross. That will eventually lead to the cross. But we even see that beginning to develop already. Uh, about a month ago, we looked at Matthew 11. And in Matthew 11, Jesus says this. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. In the forefront of Jesus's mind all throughout the gospels is this war going on, this violence going on. Nothing about this passage is anything but confrontational. You just have to look at the last verse of our passage today in Matthew 12, verse 14, to see how the people responded. Because through the first 14 verses, there's kind of this constantly evolving. Um, if you were a first century reader of the Gospel of Matthew, if you received his, his letter and you began to read it, you'd be reading through Matthew, um, even Matthew 11, but Matthew 12, and it'd kind of be this kind of like, oh, 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 right? And it culminates... In Matthew 11 of 12, verse 14, it says this. After all this goes down that we're going to talk about today, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. I mean, look at the intensity of that word. There are other places where it talks about that they plotted to kill him. This is different. This is like a crushing weight of, of violence that they're planning. So as we read through Matthew 12, make no mistake that what's happening here is a cosmic, eternal, massive spiritual collision of two kingdoms demonstrated, not simply the kindness of a gentle teacher. So the story begins in Matthew 12, verse 1. It says this, at the time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. Now, as a, as a 21st century reader, if you haven't spent a lot of time studying uh, the scriptures, this may seem like a really odd tension for us to begin with. But we have to understand that at best, what's happening here with the disciples, at best, is a cultural faux pas. It's culturally inappropriate. At best, on the day of the Sabbath, this would have seemed as culturally offensive. So why would a bunch of Jewish men do it? We can assume from the fact that they didn't think anything of it, right? It doesn't say, it doesn't begin with, as they're walking through the grain fields, they said to Jesus, hey, Jesus, we're really hungry. Is there anything we can stop to get to eat? Hey, you remember that like whole making, uh, uh, feeding 5,000, feeding 4,000? Can, can, can you do that again? No, there wasn't any exchange. They just begin to walk through the grain, through the grain fields and pick the grain and begin to eat it. We can assume from this that Jesus had already been teaching them a new way of viewing the world that permitted this. But for the rest of the world, this was at best a cultural offense, if not an outright offense against 
God, but to understand why this is such a big deal, you have to understand the role of rabbis in first century Palestine. Uh, Throughout all of the Old Testament, God gives people, gives his people, a little over 600 laws. Uh, 613 laws is is the number that often gets tossed around. 613 laws. And this was like the, the constitution or the bill of rights of the nation of Israel. It's God telling them, this is what it means to be a nation. All of these things. And some of them, you know, right? You may have even memorized them as a child. Uh, some of them are the first 10 are the 10 commandments. We call them the 10 commandments. Uh, the Jews of the day would have called them the 10 words, right? And they all begin with a word that sets them apart. And so it says this in Exodus 20 verse eight, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord, your God. In it shall, you shall not do any work, you or your sons or your daughter, your male or your female servants or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. By the day of Jesus, the rabbis had served as a sort of a, a supreme court that helped interpret and define the constitution, right? This is one of the laws, the constitution of the Jewish people and what it meant to be the people of God, the kingdom of God, the chosen possession, the chosen people of God. This was one of the things that they were to do. But if you were an average Jewish man or woman, this, this command, this law, uh, it probably gives you more questions than it does answers, right? Because like if you were to live this out, Well, what does it mean to remember the Sabbath day? If that's the crux of the command, that's the beginning, that is the first word of this command, one of the first commands of God to his people, remember the Sabbath. What does that mean? Does it mean to keep it holy as is tagged on here? And if it does, what does it mean to keep it holy? Like, what makes it unholy? Is it just this stuff down here, this working thing? Or can other things make it unholy? All questions you'd have to ask if you really believed that this is the way that you had to live to be a part of the people of God. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord. You'd have to ask questions like, what does it mean to labor? And is that different than work? And is that different from doing anything? Like, is the expectation of God that you do all your work on six days, but on the seventh day, on the Sabbath, which, by the way, was Saturday, Sabbat, right? That's the way we get said. From sundown on Friday, which is how the Jewish people measure it, from sundown on Friday till sunset, sundown on Saturday, do you just have to lay like a vegetable on a couch or a chair, not moving a single muscle? Like if you have to get up and walk across the room, is that work? Is that labor? For, for some of us it is, depending on how deep your couch is, it might be. Is that labor? It asks all these really big questions. And if your pursuit as a person of God is to try and honor God in obedience, these three verses leave more questions than they do answers. And so in a lot throughout the Old Testament, the, the, the prophets and um, uh, the Levites of the days, they, throughout the Old Testament, they would teach and expound and give more evidence and explanation and narrative that would help inform how you live out the laws of God. But you see, the problem for the first century Palestine Jews was that God had been silent for 400 years. That's a long time for 400 years. God had nothing to say to them until John the Baptist. 
So in the silence of God, this whole new class of religious leaders called rabbis began to evolve and develop up, and they became like the Supreme Court that would interpret the laws, and they would build guardrails for the people to say, well, this is what labor means, and this is what work means, and this is what holy means, and, 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 and here's what we think God means, so here's a little bit of extra space so you don't violate this rule, so you will build a little bit of extra space, and and, and this was what the rabbis would teach. They would, they would say, well, as rabbi so-and-so said before rabbi so-and-so, and they would teach, they would build on the teachings of other rabbis to teach the people, how do you live this out? How do you live this out? It's actually why when Jesus is speaking, it says that um, some of the crowds were astonished that he was one who spoke who had authority right? Because all these other rabbis, their authority was built in the interpretations of previous rabbis trying to explain things like this. And Jesus just shows up and he doesn't quote any of them. He just says, this is the way it is. This is the way it is. You see, the problem, the problem to way the rabbis, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the Jews of the day were trying to live out obedience to God was what had been meant to be a guard or a guide became a gate. As, as, uh, um, as, as Galatians 3 labels it, it talks about a tutor, that the law was intended to be a tutor, that what it intended to be a guide to help us navigate this world had became a gate that determined who was in and who was out. When our faith, hear this, important thing, if you're a note taker, you can write this down. When our faith becomes a gate, it is no longer God-honoring. It, it should also say something to us if um, in every gate in your life, uh, defining who's in and who's out, if you're always on the inside of the gate, never on the outside of the gate. Maybe the gate has more to do with you than it does with God. You see, Jesus sums up his response in exposing their error in this peculiar statement in verse 7. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. There are a lot of times where Jesus says things that are hard or confusing or, or 2,000 years later seems so distant and foreign to us, it's hard to navigate and understand. And I, I think that this is one of them because what is Jesus talking about? I desire compassion, not sacrifice. Because if you read the Old Testament and even the New Testament, it seems like, at a simple reading, it seems like God desires sacrifice. Have you read the Old Testament? Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Even in the New Testament says, commands us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. It sure seems like God desires sacrifice. So what is Jesus talking about here? Well, the problem for the religious leaders of Jesus' day and all too often for us is when we separate compassion from sacrifice. When we separate compassion from sacrifice. Compassion and sacrifice are inseparable intersections of God's love. Compassion and sacrifice. 
Matthew says it uh, another way, and well, Jesus says it in the book of Matthew in another way. In Matthew 22, verses 37 and following, it says this, and he said to him, this is being Jesus, said to a guy, you shall love the Lord with all your God, with the, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Hear that right there, right? That's sacrifice language. You should give everything that you have. That that is God honoring to sacrifice, to give of yourself. But then it goes on. It says, "This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it: you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments." depend the whole law and the prophets on these two commandments. If you've been around long enough, we've talked about in this passage that when Jesus says this right here in verse 39, the second is like it. He's not saying that it's similar or it's secondary or it's nice or it's, it's um, uh, beneficial, right? He's saying that the second is like it in that it is in the same nature. It is the same thing. John in his epistle, he rephrases it a little differently. He says this in 1 John 4, 20. He says, um, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Just take a deep breath and breathe that in. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. These are inseparable. Our love for God, our sacrifice of ourselves before God is inseparable with our love, with the demonstration of compassion and grace and mercy to our brothers. You see, when the Old Testament speaks and thus Jesus' world the world that Jesus lived in, first century Palestine, of sacrifice, the exchange is almost exclusively vertical. When you sacrifice a lamb, you sacrifice a lamb to restore and redeem or fix or repay a brokenness this way, between you and God, right? You go to the temple and you restore this way. But compassion in the Old Testament and in Jesus' world in first century Palestine is almost exclusively horizontal. You can't have compassion on God. He's God. You can't have compassion. You can't be like, oh, you know, God, I'm, man, real bummed you're having a hard day today. Right? We're never called to. We're called to have compassion on brothers and sisters, on our enemies, on the foreigner, on the foreigner, on our family, on our, on our on our community to have compassion. You see, do you see it? You see it? You see, you cannot have a sacrifice that honors God apart from a compassion for your brothers and sisters. They are inseparable. An execution of the law of God that does not demonstrate the love for God and your brother turns a guide into a gate. Turns a guide into a gate. You see, actually, on top of that, too, like just as long as we're here talking about sacrifice, God doesn't need your sacrifice. God never has. God, God doesn't need anything from you. 
It says in Acts 17, um, Acts 17, Paul speaking, and he says, the God who made the world, which by the way, he just spoke it into existence, spoke everything that you have, everything that you own, everything you understand to be, he spoke into existence, and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed, you see that right there? Needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. God does not need your sacrifice. It's why Jesus, in the middle of our passage today, Jesus says this. He says, for the Son of Man is the Lord, I like some translations that say, even of the Sabbath. That even this thing that we see as such an institution, that every seven days comes the seventh day. That every seven day comes the Sabbath, comes the Saturday, comes this rhythm that as the, the sun moves in the sky and the, and the earth spins, that Sabbath comes, that even God is the Lord of even that. For he spoke all things into existence. He doesn't need your sacrifice. He, he doesn't need, just, just hear me on this for a second. He doesn't need anything from you. You see, God calls his people, he calls us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, not because he needs it, but because we do. He, he, he doesn't need us to invest our time and our gifts so that he can accomplish the mission, the expansion, the kingdom of God in the world to cast out darkness. He doesn't need you. But you know what he knows? Is that you need to give your gifts, your sacrifice of your time, so that you understand the purpose that resonates into all of eternity. So that you know that your life has a value and meaning in contributing and resonate into restoring all that is broken. It's not he that needs your sacrifice, but it's you that need it. He, he doesn't need your money, right? Holy Spirit's not up in heaven going, uh, uh, Father, Father, hey, bank account's getting a little low. Can you call Timmy, see if we can take a loan out? He doesn't need your money, but what he knows you need is to live gener generously, to live sacrificially, so that you might loosen your hands from the things of this world, from the, consume, from the bondage of stuff, of consumerism, of envy, of discontentment. He doesn't need your worship. He doesn't need you to sing, to, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice. He doesn't need your sacrifice but he knows that you need to gather together, to sing, to recenter your heart and your mind in your rightful place at the foot of the cross in submission to the king of all creation as a son or a daughter, dearly loved. He doesn't need your sacrifice. He never has. You see, Jesus goes on in our story to demonstrate true compassion. In Matthew 12, verses 9, it continues the story, and it says this, departing from there, he went into their synagogue, right, the synagogue of the community he's in, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? You see, they've still missed it. 
They've still missed it. They've still missed it. They asked him so that they might accuse him. And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. See, he stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. You see, Jesus does get angry. Jesus gets very angry sometimes. Any time that we become an obstacle to other sons and daughters finding their way back to their good father, God becomes angry and unleashes all the vengeance of casting out darkness that we see in sending his son to the cross that God will spare no expense in destroying the gates that have become obstacles to sons and daughters coming home. You can't read this passage and not see an enraged Jesus. Why? Because they'd use their self-serving sacrifices to, to justify the exclusion of other and Jesus gets mad any time that anything keeps others from the kingdom of God. You see, instead of being a gate, instead of being an obstacle, instead of being a stumbling block, which in fact is all language used of Jesus, that Jesus is the gate. Jesus says, I'm the one who's going to decide who's in and out. Jesus is the stumbling block, not you. Jesus is. That we're not called to be a gate, but instead we're called to be ambassadors. You see, a gate creates a barrier, creates a boundary line of who's in and who's out. And you know what an ambassador does? An ambassador moves the boundary line with every step. Everywhere an ambassador goes, he carries the flag of his nation, and the boundaries of the kingdom of that ambassador expand as far as they walk. That every time someone comes into contact with an ambassador, they enter into that kingdom or nation. You see, we're called to be ambassadors of the good news of Jesus, of grace and mercy, that there is a loving and kind God. And every single time people come into contact with us, they should experience through us the fullness of the kingdom of God exploding in their life. Grace and mercy and restoration and joy and peace. Not a gate. Not a gate. They should experience the fullness of the kindness of God that draws men and women into repentance. As ambassadors, we carry the edge of the kingdom of God further with every step into darkness. So today, so today, may you tear down the gates and obstacles that you've created that have prevented brothers and sisters, men and women, children of God from returning to their good father. May you, may you be an ambassador of compassion and sacrifice.
to a world desperate to know grace and purpose. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning, this day, that you are still today the same God that we see in Jesus 2,000 years ago, the fullness dwelling in him, a God of compassion and grace, a God who, who um, with aggression pursues the destruction of darkness and any gates that keep us from you. Lord, for those of us who are listening today, who have felt outside, who felt rejected, who felt unwanted, who felt um, that our past or our present keeps us outside the kingdom of God. Lord, would you crush that gate in front of us and invite us in. Lord, for those of us who have become an obstacle, who have become a gate and not a conduit, not an ambassador. Lord, would you destroy the idols in our heart with the same kind of ruthlessness that you destroyed death on the cross with. That we might be redeemed and restored to be your ambassadors of grace, compassion, and sacrifice. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. In a moment, we're going to continue in worship, and we're going to worship in song. And we invite you, wherever you are, in your car, in your living room, in a bedroom, out in your backyard, we would invite you in this moment for the next 12, 15 minutes to set out this time as an act of worship, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And that may mean sitting where you're at and praying. That may mean standing and raising your hand. It may mean singing. It may be getting on your knees or on your face before God and offering your body as a sacrifice so that he might stir up in you a greater love for him that would explode out into love and compassion and grace for your brothers and sisters. But whatever you choose to do, let us be men and women of grace and compassion, ambassadors of the goodness of God for all the world. And may we worship, for he is good and kind to us.